Well, great. I want to welcome everyone um, to the LSE this evening. Uh, my name is Peter Tribowitz. I teach in the International Relations Department uh, and run the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting um, tonight's lecture. Tonight's lecture is part of the Phelan Family Lecture Series, which has been made possible by the generosity of the John and Amy uh, Phelan Foundation. Uh, it's a great personal pleasure to welcome tonight's speaker, someone um, I've known for many years, um, Professor Stephen Walt. Steve is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University uh, ha and has an appropriately long and impressive CV. Uh, briefly, uh, he did his doctoral work uh, at UC Berkeley under the guidance of Ken Waltz, then took up a teaching post at um, Princeton, followed by a, a pretty long stint at uh, the University of Chicago before joining uh, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a founding co-editor uh, of the highly regarded Cornell University Press series on um, international security, and a contributing editor at Foreign Policy, where he has been blogging for, it's 10 years, right? Yeah. 10 years now. Um, He's published a lot along the way. Uh, he's the author of several well-known books, including the award-winning uh, The Origins of Alliances, Revolution and War, Taming American Power, The Israel Lobby with John Mearsheimer, and most recently, The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite, and The Decline of U.S. Primacy, along with dozens of articles and on uh, international politics and, um, and American foreign policy. I think one of the things that um, has always distinguished um, Steve from, uh, at least in the American Academy and especially um, in um, his home discipline of political science, uh, is his deep commitment to public engagement, to using his scholarly training and work to speak to uh, pressing public issues. And so it's not surprising uh, that he's decided to weigh in on the debate about the future of American foreign policy and as the title for tonight's lecture suggests, whether America still has what it takes to succeed in the world of statecraft. For those of you on Twitter, uh, the hashtag is LSEUSForeignPol. If you haven't already, please turn your phone to um, silence since this is being recorded. Um, after the lecture, I will do my level best to get as many questions in as possible. Um, I'm guessing that there are going to be a few. And then after we wrap up, there will be an opportunity to go and purchase a copy of Steve's book um, and come back inside and get him to sign it. And so with that, please join me in giving Professor Stephen Walt a warm LSE welcome. Thanks very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back here at LSE uh, with the subject of U.S. foreign policy in front of us. Uh, I want to thank Peter, my old friend, for the invitation and a very kind introduction, and thank all of you for coming today. Um, if the question is, did the United States ever have a successful foreign policy, the obvious answer is yes. 
The U.S. foreign policy has succeeded in the past, uh, sometimes quite dramatically. Think of the Marshall Plan, formation of NATO, uh, peaceful German reunification, the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. You could add lots to that list. And in theory, there's no reason why it couldn't be successful in the future. But it hasn't been very successful lately. And I'm going to try to explain where we went off course, what we need to do to get back on track. Now, to do that, I'm going to begin by considering the failures of the past quarter century. It's been that long. We were filled with optimism when the Cold War ended, and that optimism is almost entirely gone today. So there's an obvious question to ask, what went wrong? Um, and I'm going to argue that the taproot of that failure was our attempt to spread American ideals and uh, create a global liberal order. And I'll focus on the role of the American foreign policy elite in advancing that particular vision. Um, next, I'm going to consider how we can do better and make the case for a return to the principles that guided American strategy for most of American history. And along the way, I'm going to explain why Donald Trump is not the guy who's going to deliver this better foreign policy to us. I'll say a few words about why our current level of polarization is, in fact, deeply harmful to the conduct of foreign policy. And I'll say again a bit more about what needs to be done to make it more successful. I will try to do that quickly so there's lots of time for questions. All right, well, Brent Scowcroft recalled, looking back on the end of the Cold War, that the collapse of the Soviet Union left the United States quote, at the pinnacle of power with the rarest opportunity to remake the world. This was the famous unipolar moment, which some of you may remember. Back in the 1990s, the United States was on good terms with all of the major powers, including Russia and China. Iraq was being disarmed. Iran had no enrichment capacity at all. And we thought we had capped North Korea's nuclear program as well. Globalization is spreading rapidly with the formation of the World Trade Organization, the opening up of markets around the world. NATO and the European Union are expanding. Democracy is spreading. The Oslo Accords give us all hope for a lasting peace in the Middle East. The American military seems unstoppable. The economy is doing well. The wind is at our back and life is good. Now consider the world we live in today. China's power and ambitions have grown steadily. Russia has seized Crimea, interfered in several other states. Relations with Moscow are now worse than at any time since the end of the Cold War. Not surprisingly, Moscow and Beijing are increasingly aligned together. Democracy is in retreat worldwide. According to Freedom House, 2018 was the 13th consecutive year in which global freedom declined. In 2017, The Economist magazine, that notorious left-wing publication, in its annual Democracy Index, downgraded the United States from the category full democracy to the category flawed democracy. Since 1993, North Korea, India, and Pakistan have all tested nuclear weapons, despite American opposition. And Iran has acquired the capacity to build a nuclear weapon if it ever decides it wants to. Repeated American attempts to broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace have all been humiliating failures, and the two-state solution that has been the goal of every American president, beginning with Clinton, is now further away than ever. We were attacked, of course, on September 11th. We responded by invading Afghanistan and then Iraq. 
Both wars ended up being costly disasters, and the American military no longer seems quite so unstoppable. Indeed, much of the Middle East is in flames, with American interference helping to create failed states in Libya and Yemen and Syria. So back in 2016, when Donald Trump called U.S. foreign policy a complete and total disaster, and said the American foreign policy establishment was out of touch and unaccountable, a lot of Americans nodded their heads in agreement. I would argue the taproot of those failures was the American commitment to a grand strategy that some of us have called liberal hegemony. Liberal not in the sense of being left-wing, but in the sense of trying to promote the classic liberal values of democracy, markets, rule of law, human rights. It's one of hegemony because it saw the United States as the indispensable power that was uniquely qualified to lead and accelerate that process. Now, this sounds good to most of us who grew up in liberal societies, but when you think about it, this is a highly revisionist approach to the rest of the world. Instead of just defending American territory, perhaps helping some allies uphold the balance of power in a few key regions, this strategy sought to remake the status quo, to remake local politics around the world, peacefully if possible, but in some cases by using military force, and gradually reshape the world to be much more like the United States. The problem is this strategy is also fundamentally flawed. For starters, it inflates American defense requirements. By 2016, the United States was formally committed to defending more states around the world than at any time in its history, most of those states free riding on American protection. Trying to spread liberal values threatened non-democratic regimes in various ways who naturally began to try and resist. The best example here is probably NATO expansion, which poisoned relations with Russia and eventually helped cause the conflicts in Georgia and Ukraine of course, also pushing Russia and China closer together. This strategy assumed that the United States knew how to create a democracy in the wake of regime change, but toppling foreign governments led to failed states and costly occupations instead. This should have been obvious. Regime change eliminates the existing set of institutions in a country, creates winners and losers, which makes violent resistance very likely. The United States didn't know how to design new institutions that would work in these places it didn't understand, or to pick which leaders would be competent and able to govern. Efforts to impose order on increasingly violent situations fueled corruption, led to various abuses and civilian deaths, and exacerbated local rivalries. And looking back, the belief, the confident belief, that the United States could do this kind of elaborate social engineering in places like Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, etc., was positively delusional. Last but not least, globalization did not deliver as promised. Uh, we eventually created a financial system that was far more fragile than what had preceded it, as we all learned to our sorrow in 2008. My point here is that liberal hegemony was doomed to fail no matter who was president. So why did the United States do this? And why did we persist in pursuing this goal even in the face of repeated failures? Well, one reason is the remarkable position of primacy we found ourselves in, which made this effort seem possible. But when you think about it, 
the position of being the unipolar power also meant this campaign wasn't really necessary. The United States was already in extraordinarily good shape in the 1990s. So you, again, you have to ask, why did it decide to become even more ambitious and try and spread that system everywhere? I think it's also in partly because those liberal values are really hardwired into American politics, and liberal states tend to be crusaders. But most important of all, there was a strong bipartisan consensus in favor of this approach within our foreign policy elite, a consensus not fully shared by the general public. What do I mean by the elite? Well, this is the blob. This is what uh, former National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, who worked for President Obama, uh, called the blob. I mean, first of all, the formal institutions of government, like the president, the NSC, the Department of State and Defense, the intelligence agencies, organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, think tanks like Brookings, Carnegie, the American Enterprise Institute, and literally dozens more special interest groups and lobbies who try to advance some foreign policy cause, and there's literally dozens of them as well. And finally, those parts of the media that deal with foreign affairs and scholars like me who write books and articles that try to shape opinion, who sometimes serve in government, or who train the people who go on to those jobs. Just a couple of points about this elite. Uh, some of you may hope to join it someday. First, here's the good news. There are no formal requirements for membership. <laughs> I know you're getting degrees here, but there is, in fact, no required degree. There's no bar exam or medical board that you have to take. In the United States, you have to get a license to sell real estate. You do not need a license to practice foreign policy. All you really need to do is convince some other people in the elite that you're smart, energetic, useful, loyal, etc. Second, it is a community, especially at the highest levels. Everybody knows everybody else. They've often worked together repeatedly. They belong to lots of the same overlapping organizations. Well, because it's a community with no formal membership requirements, professional success depends on your networks and your reputation. And that means there's a powerful incentive to stay inside the consensus. What's that consensus been? You probably know most of the ingredients. NATO is essential. Iran, Russia, and China are bad. Israel should not be criticized. Nuclear proliferation is bad, but our nuclear arsenal is absolutely essential. <laughs> Free trade is good most of the time. Terrorism is the absolute worst. Democracy and human rights are very important, except when our allies are falling short. Most important of all, the United States must exercise leadership on every issue and in every part of the globe and has the right to pressure or in some cases overthrow governments we happen to dislike if we think we can get away with it. So my pro tip for all of you is questioning those ideas is not a smart career move in Washington, D.C. <laughs> now let me be clear. There are disagreements inside the blob over specific foreign policy issues, such as whether the Iran deal was a good thing or not, what American policy should be towards Syria. But in general, in Washington, voices supporting liberal hegemony have been far more numerous, far better funded, far better organized than voices suggesting the United States might want to act with a bit more restraint. So why does this elite 
like liberal hegemony so much? Well, partly because many of them, maybe most of them, genuinely believe in these principles, think it's good for the United States and good for the world to try and spread them far and wide. But notice that trying to remake the world in America's image also increases their power and status, flatters their sense of self-worth, justifies bigger budgets, and gives them lots to do. Liberal hegemony, in short, has been a full employment policy for the foreign policy elite. The American people, however, have a slightly different view. On the one hand, they reject isolationism. It's quite clear from surveys going back decades. The United States, uh, the American people do not favor a retreat to fortress America. But they do seem to want a more restrained foreign policy. Back in 1964, if you asked, do you agree with the following statement? We should not think so much in international terms, but concentrate on our own national problems and building up strength here at home. In 1964, 54% of Americans agreed with that. By 2013, the percentage agreeing had risen to 80%. Consider also that the last four American presidents all ran for office, ran for office pledging to do less in world affairs. What was Bill Clinton's mantra back in 1992? It's the economy, stupid. George W. Bush said he would conduct a humble foreign policy and not do the kind of nation building that Clinton ended up doing. <laughs> Barack Obama, of course, ran for president on the fact that he had opposed the Iraq war and said that he would do nation building at home. And as I've already indicated, Donald Trump, of course, took on a full-blown assault on the foreign policy elite and its strategy. So how does this elite convince the public to tolerate, tolerate its ambitious aims even when they're not working very well? Well, first, by inflating threats to convince Americans they won't be secure if we're not meddling all over the world. By exaggerating the benefits, by promising that doing this will bring peace and benefits around the world. By concealing the costs either by borrowing the money to pay for these wars or relying on the all-volunteer force so that average Americans don't, aren't consciously aware of all the things that we're doing. And last, and perhaps most importantly, by not holding anyone accountable. Consider that the people responsible for the Iraq War remain respected figures and eligible for top, top jobs. Until a few weeks ago, one of the main advocates of that war, John Bolton, was our national security advisor. If you're a member of the foreign policy elite, you can give classified information to your girlfriend, lie to the FBI about it, plead guilty and pay a fine, and then resume a prominent role as a well-regarded expert. You can be convicted of lying to Congress, get pardoned, go back into government, screw up again, land a nice sinecure at a prestigious think tank, and later become special envoy for Venezuela. By contrast, those who challenge the consensus usually get marginalized, even when they turn out to be right. Some of you may know the story of uh, Colonel Paul Yingling. Uh, Paul Yingling was an army colonel, served a couple of tours in Iraq, commanding an artillery unit. And while there, he wrote an article called A Failure of Generalship, which was published in one of the army journals. This was very critical of the way the senior army leadership was prosecuting the war in Iraq. The article was hailed as an accurate and telling critique of senior leadership failures. It was assigned as required reading at West Point and at the Command and General Staff College. 
So the question you want to ask yourself, did Colonel Yingling rise in the U.S. Army? Of course not. He was passed over for promotion, left the service, and is now teaching high school in Colorado. What I'm suggesting here is that the foreign policy community is in some respects a self-protecting world. And by the way, there's little evidence that the elite has learned very much from these mistakes. Hawks like John Bolton or Secretary of State Pompeo are essentially repeating the past mistakes of, say, the Bush administration. And recent books and articles by Susan Rice, Jake Sullivan, my colleague and friend Samantha Power are remarkably unrepentant or unreflective about the mistakes we've been making. In their view, the strategy we're following is still the right one. It just needs to be sold better so the American people will continue to support it. The problem, of course, is if no one is ever held accountable and if the people who get things right don't get recognized while the people who get things wrong get reappointed, you wouldn't expect to do better over time. Well, that brings us to Donald Trump. Wasn't he going to drain the swamp, challenge the blob, make America great again? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> the, and the chapter in my book is on Trump is called How Not to Fix Foreign Policy. Now, to be sure, Trump has done a number of things very differently. His personal style is completely unprecedented in our history. He has openly questioned NATO's value. He treats our democratic allies with visible contempt, dislikes the EU intensely, has no real commitment to liberal values that I can see, seems unusually fond of authoritarian leaders of various sorts, and I think it's fair to say he has put globalization on probation in some very real ways, especially with respect to China. But not unlike the transition from Bush to Obama, a lot is still the same. He's had trade wars with a number of countries now, but they've produced only modest changes thus far. The new agreement with South Korea, the new NAFTA, they're not very different than the old agreements. My prediction is if he gets a trade agreement with China, it will not be a particularly significant one. The American commitment to NATO for all his complaints remains intact. The burden-sharing issue, which is his principal grievance, is not new either. That's been uh, part of NATO politics at least since Eisenhower. We have the same allies in the Middle East. Our hostility to Iran is nothing new. The Obama administration, despite what you may have read, was actually quite confrontational towards Iran on a number of occasions. He's redeployed American forces in Syria and abandoned the Kurds, but he's sending more troops to Saudi Arabia. So we're not getting out of the Middle East under Trump. Indeed, just like President Obama in his first year as president, Donald Trump sent more troops to Afghanistan. He criticizes China and Iran for their human rights policies, but he doesn't criticize Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, Egypt, or Israel. Guess what? That's just like all his predecessors, too. Russia is still facing sanctions over Ukraine. China is still seen as our principal long-term rival, and we're still spending more on defense than the next seven countries put together. What I'm suggesting here is that changes in presidential style, and they are enormous, are much more significant than changes in foreign policy substance. Thus far, the blob has been winning more than it's losing. But we end up with the worst of both worlds, an overly ambitious foreign policy with an incompetent skipper at the helm of the ship of state. Just let me unpack that a bit more. If Trump wanted to confront China over its trade policies, 
Why leave the Trans-Pacific Partnership on your third day in office, and why then pick fights with all your other major trading partners around the world instead of pulling them all together and confronting China together? Not smart. If Trump wanted to address Iran's regional behavior, why not stay in the nuclear agreement and bring multilateral pressure to bear? Instead, of course, he declared war on Iran via his policy of maximum pressure, um, and then Iran called his bluff by threatening to leave the deal, restart its nuclear program, by attacking American allies in the region, raising the risk of war, and what happened? Trump backed down. Iran, by the way, has even less reason to cut a deal with us now. Would you believe any promise that Trump made to you? And that means if we do go forward diplomatically with Iran, they're going to insist on tangible benefits up front before they agree to anything further. So that was dumb. If Trump wanted to get out of Syria, the obvious way to do that would be to work with Russia, Turkey, Iran, and Syria to get a stable solution and eventually withdraw in a disciplined fashion. Instead, he managed to betray the Kurds, alarm our allies, and strain relations with Turkey simultaneously. This is not easy to do, but he managed. So he's not going to fix things. We are also deeply divided politically, and this damages our foreign policy in at least four ways. First of all, it makes it harder to address big domestic issues in the United States. The opioid crisis, inequality, gun violence, jobs, education, etc. And that means over time the United States is not going to be as strong as it could be if we address those problems expeditiously. Second. Deep partisanship leaves us more vulnerable when foreign powers use social media to try and interfere in our politics. Third, when we're divided, other states can't trust us. Why reach an agreement with one administration when the next one comes in and just blithely walks away from it? So the more divided we are as a country, the harder it is for others to count on us over time. And then finally, I think it hurts the American image. You might argue it hurts our brand. The more divided, corrupt, and gridlocked the United States is, the less others will listen to us or follow our, our advice, especially if we try to tell them how to improve their political systems. I mean, seriously, somebody taking advice on democracy from the United States is kind of like going to Boris Johnson for marriage counseling. <laughs> so trying to move American politics back toward greater civility and effectiveness would be a good idea. But here again, I think Donald Trump is probably the least likely president to bring the country together. So let me wrap this up by outlining what I think would be a better way how we could have a more successful foreign policy. Instead of liberal hegemony and trying to remake the world, we should adopt a strategy some of us have called offshore balancing. Not the most elegant term, but nobody's come up with a better one. Um, the core logic of this strategy is simple and actually should resonate with Brits because it used to be your strategy. Uh, it recognizes that the United States is in fact a remarkably secure country. Uh, still the world's largest economy, sophisticated, uh, innovative in various ways. Still the world's foremost military power, still has thousands of nuclear weapons to deter direct attack, and still protected by these two big oceans, which do not insulate us from all dangers, but do protect us from many of them. 
The main threat to the United States, given how favorable everything is, would be a peer competitor, a country roughly as powerful as we were, especially one that dominated its neighborhood the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere and could therefore project power around the world the way the United States does. Remember, the reason the United States can wander all over the world getting into trouble is we're not worried about Canada trying to take Minnesota, right? I'm not, I don't think they want Minnesota, but you understand my point. Um, so the United States has long sought to prevent any state from dominating Europe, Asia, or the Persian Gulf. They're the key centers of power in the world. When we can, we try to pass the buck to others to get them to do it, to get the regional powers to uphold the balance themselves, to husband American wealth and American lives. Now, if you think about that today, China is really the only potential regional hegemon. So the United States should focus on balancing China in Asia. That means the United States can gradually reduce its military role in Europe and let Europeans handle their own defense. This, of course, sounds heretical to a generation raised on NATO. But consider that Europe has about 500 million people in it. Its combined gross domestic product is roughly equal to the United States, a little bit smaller, um, much greater than Russia, for example. Russia really is the only conceivable conventional military challenge uh, around Europe anytime. Russia has 140 million people compared to 500 million in Europe. The Russian economy is smaller than that of Italy's. Right? So the idea that Europe lacks the resources or the capability to defend itself, at least in theory, I think doesn't stand up to much scrutiny. <clears throat> Moreover, NATO's European members, not counting the United States, NATO's European members spend three to four times what Russia spends on defense every year. They don't spend it very well. But the idea that they, again, lack the capabilities, I think, isn't correct. Um, the United States uh, should make this shift out of Europe gradual and amicable. And by the way, while we're doing that, uh, we should be pro the EU, not anti the EU, because the European Union is an institution that helps keep European politics relatively uh, boring, and that's a good thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, the United States should definitely reduce its military presence in the Middle East and go back to the policy we followed from 1945 to 1991. The United States had security interests in the Middle East and economic interests in the Middle East throughout that period. We had security partners in the region. We did not have a lot of troops in the region. When the Shah of Iran fell in 1979, we created the Rapid Deployment Force because we were worried about stability in the Gulf, but we didn't put it in the Gulf. We kept it away from the region and only sent it there for the first time in 1991 after Iraq seized Kuwait, and we were worried about the local balance of power. Right. We should return to that policy as well because our military involvement in the Middle East has not been good for anybody. Um, by the way, while we're doing that, we should have normal relations with all countries in the region instead of special relations with some and no relations with others. None of our current allies is so virtuous or valuable to deserve unconditional American support, and refusing to deal with states like Iran just decreases American influence and leverage. And I do have this fantasy that one day Secretary Pompeo goes off to Riyadh, and while he's in Riyadh, the Saudis know that his next stop is Tehran. And when he's in Tehran, he tells 
the Iranians that his next stop is Tel Aviv. And when he's in Tel Aviv, he says, oh, by the way, I'm on my way to Ankara afterwards. The idea is you're going to give each of those countries an incentive to tell him a few things that he would like to hear for fear that he's going to get a better offer at his next stop. That's how a country that is on the other side of the world maximizes its leverage as opposed to giving one set of countries unconditional backing and not talking to the others. Uh, we should get out of the regime change and nation building business and stay out. We've been doing it for a quarter century and we're not getting better at it with practice. Put far more emphasis on diplomacy and once again think of military power, economic sanctions and other forms of coercion as our last resort rather than as our first impulse. Uh, last but not least, we should not abandon our political values at all. But the best way to promote those liberal values would be to set a good example back home, uh, to make the United States the kind of country and the kind of society that others would observe, admire, and seek to emulate, rather than having our system imposed upon them by a pressure. I just want to emphasize what I'm sketching here is not isolationism, because the United States would still be engaged economically, diplomatically, and in some parts of the world, militarily but we would not be squandering resources needlessly, and we could devote more effort, time, and money to fixing problems in the United States. To do that is going to require changing the composition of our foreign policy elite and promoting a broader debate about alternatives. I think that means creating some new institutions, some new think tanks that will bring those ideas into the conversation. Younger Americans, by the way, seem very receptive if you look at surveys. So this, I think, is an ideal time for that. And I think there's some developments uh, I could talk more about if you're interested along those lines. Finally, I suspect the growing rivalry with China is going to force the United States to get serious about foreign policy again, instead of trying to run the world or indulging in lots of idealistic crusades, we will once again have to set priorities and decide what's really important. Uh, Adam Smith once wrote that there is a lot of ruin in a nation. And I think that's especially true when you're a very lucky country like the United States and you have as many enduring advantages as we still enjoy. Good fortune has allowed the United States to survive a rather cavalier approach to foreign policy, which I always view as the confirmation of Bismarck's alleged quip that there seems to be a special providence that looks after drunkards, fools, and the United States of America. <laughs> For Americans, the real danger the country faces is not some powerful array of clever foreign adversaries who are going to snatch our security and way of life away from us. The problems we're facing today are mostly of our own making. Uh, as the cartoonist Walt Kelly observed many years ago, we have met the enemy and he is us. So the United States, not unlike Great Britain, is at something of a crossroads. In our case, down one road lies more of the same, what we've been doing, with, I think, pretty much the same results. Down another road is a strategy that served the country quite well in the past, and I think would do so uh, again if tried. As I've said, it's not the foreign policy that the current occupant of the Oval Office is going to be able to deliver, but I do think it's the foreign policy most Americans actually want. And the only question is, how long will it take before they get it? When they do, it will have significant repercussions for the rest of the world, including the United Kingdom, 
On balance, I think they'll be positive, but that may be something we want to touch on in discussion. In any case, thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to hearing the comments. <clears throat> So I'm going to uh, thank Steve. That was great. And um, uh, I think maybe I'll, I'll ask the first question and then we'll, um, we'll go around. I, I've, I've got a number of questions, but it, one that it occurred to me while you were talking. So um, because I've read your book and so I have questions about the book, but um, the blob. So you attach. Uh, I mean, a lot of weight to the blob in explaining the failures since 1991. And I'm just wondering about that because, I mean, the blob has always existed, right? It's basically, I mean, let's, we don't need to go back before the 1940s, but we basically have had the blob since World War II. And, um, and it, you know, I would say that, you know, there were no credentials that were required, maybe being a Wall Street investment banker, but, you know, there really were no credentials required for being in the foreign policy establishment, I mean, in the way that, you know, it's similar in the way that you've described. And it also seems to me that failure was rewarded. I mean, Bob McNamara is a perfect example. Um, he presided over a disaster in Southeast Asia and then went on to head up the World Bank. Um, so I, I wonder how much that re how much that really explains. I mean, you would have to have an argument that somehow the blob has fundamentally changed in a way. It seems to me, or it's interacting with something else that's different. I don't. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great question, and certainly one of the critiques of you know my book would be to say you know it's no worse than it's ever been. Uh, so, you know, even during the Cold War ended well, but there was a lot of mistakes made. And I think the most obvious one would be Indochina. And you could argue that much of Indochina, uh, the Indochina war and American involvement there, reflects some of the same pathologies uh, that David Halberstam, I think, you know, nailed perfectly in his book, The Best and the Brightest, a rather inbred elite of people, arrogant, self-confident, not willing to consider alternatives, uh, hard to criticize, uh, et cetera. So this is not like... Uh, the blob sprang forth in 1992 to suddenly grab it, uh, control of American foreign policy. Uh, but there are a couple of other features in it. One is the nature of the foreign policy establishment in the United States has changed a lot over time. Uh, up until the late 1950s, uh, early 1960s, it was not, uh, first of all, it wasn't nearly as large. Uh, Eisenhower's National Security Council was, you know, 35 people, something like that. Obama eventually got his up to three or 400. Or so. so it's gotten bigger. Uh, second, increasingly it became people for whom doing foreign policy was their entire professional vocation. Unlike the old elite that you know, made their money on Wall Street or in business or whatever, and then, uh, you know, so McNamara had been president of Ford Motor Company before he got involved uh, running, running foreign policy. And notice that has one interesting feature. If you've already made your money, you actually have greater independence. You can leave if you need to. I actually think if you look back, there was sometimes greater diversity of thought in some of those periods than we've had 
since then, where people who go into the foreign policy world now, with some exceptions, are often people who are going to do it their entire lives. And they're going to do it in a lot of different places. Um, I mentioned in the book the career of Les Gelb, who was a, a friend of mine and actually quite a, a sharp guy. Gelb got uh, his PhD from Harvard in history, taught at Wesleyan University for a few years, then went to work as a Senate aide uh, for a few years, then when he went to work in the Pentagon, where he was the principal author of the Pentagon Papers, moved from there to the Department of State, moved from there to the New York Times, where he was their principal national security correspondent, became president of the Council on Foreign Relations. So he was doing foreign policy his entire life, but he did it in every conceivable sector, at think tanks and public, and the only thing he didn't work for is you know, a bank uh, at some point along the way. And that's the foreign policy elite now. It's people who move around in different positions, but they're doing uh, foreign policy all the time. The, th the place I think you see this uh, most visibly, and it's not surprising, is the fact that you have, uh, for you IR theorists out there, we had a major structural change in 1992. Soviet Union disappears. We go from a bipolar rivalry, which had shaped much of world politics for the previous four decades, to a unipolar system. Right? And you ask yourself, was there then a big debate in the United States over what that meant for America's position in the world? The answer is no. There was hardly any discussion. There was a little bit. There were some academics who scribbled some things that no one paid any attention to. There was a tiny bit of discussion in elite circles about what this might mean. And there was, very importantly, there was a peace dividend. The Bush administration did cut the defense budget. But they cut the defense budget without lowering any of America's involvement in the world. People in Europe were worried the United States was going to come home. People in Asia were worried that the United States was going to come home. The United States never contemplated that for a second. And by the mid-1990s, we were pushing the other direction. We were going to expand our commitments in the Middle East and in Asia. We were going to expand NATO without hardly any discussion at all. And I think that's because there was this well-established foreign policy uh, elite that strongly believed in what they were doing, thought that for us to withdraw would generate all sorts of instability, didn't see there was any real cost to it, because who was going to stand up to us? We can shove NATO as far east as necessary, because Russia is too weak to do anything uh, about it. And there was hardly any discussion over whether or not really that was going to make, uh, make sense at all. And that, as I say, is the sort of taproot of where this comes from. All right, I got them revved up. So um, Naturally, we'll take questions. How about that woman way in the back in a black sweater, right? So briefly introduce yourself, um, if you would, and try to keep the questions short and crisp. Hi, yeah. My name is Beth Warren. I work for the Economist Intelligence Unit, so thanks for the shout out to the Democracy Index <laughs> at the start. Uh, my question is, why is your taproot the foreign policy elite and not the industrial military complex? Why would you say the BAE systems are part of the problem here? Uh, I, I, yeah. Uh, so I would include the parts of the private sector that have a sort of direct stake in foreign policy, and certainly uh, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex would be part of that as well. Many, not by any means all, but many of the prominent think tanks in Washington who work on foreign policy and international affairs, particularly on the national security side, are funded uh, largely or at least in part by defense contractors who are selling the sort of image of, you know, the, uh, 
the world is dangerous, the world is insecure, uh, selling weapons to others is a good thing to do, remaining actively engaged is a good thing to do. So I, I don't mean to exclude them either. Okay, other hands. Um, how about um, this gentleman right down here in the blue, bluish black sweater? Yeah. Yeah, you. As, as of the first two well, questions, it's a... clear wearing a turtleneck is a huge <laughs> advantage. <laughs> okay, now my question is about um, Brexit mainly. So um, do you think that in the kind of uh, divisions that is happening between Brexit and uh, between the United Kingdom and um, Europe, um, the strategy of the United States should be to side with uh, br uh, Britain or should be to side with Europe? Okay, think about that for one second. Then there's a, an, I, he doesn't have a sweater. That guy in the... In the middle, yes, you. Um, they're coming to you. One second. Wait for the mic, okay? You're being recorded for posterity, so um, there you go. Good evening. My name is Dr. Kai Hebel, Leiden University. Thanks, Professor Walt. Always great to hear you speak live uh, and see your energy emanating from the podium. Um, I've got a question about American exceptionalism. So that's a word that was waiting to hear from you, but I don't think... Uh, you uttered it today. Is it even conceivable, given how American exceptions, how deeply ingrained that system of beliefs is, um, is it even conceivable to have that restrained uh, foreign policy? And then the second question, if I may, uh, you talked a bit about power um, transition. What about power diffusion? Right, so is it even possible to have that kind of restrained um, sort of old school foreign policy in an age of power diffusion with the rise of non-state actors, um, think of the social media giants, the AI corporations, the multinational corporations. So the 50 largest industrial companies have a higher profit margins than 113 member states of the United Nations combined. Okay, so you got like three questions actually. Yeah. And I gave you time to see if you can yeah, top yeah. your Boris comment. Yeah, so, um, so Brexit. Um, First of all, if you're under the illusion that post-Brexit, if it ever happens, um, someone's written the play Waiting for Brexit, right? Um, uh, if, it, if it ever happens, if you're under the illusion that this is going to lead to a renewal of the special relationship and Great Britain is going to become America's best buddy or anything like that, um, this is not going to happen. The reason the Trump administration uh, likes Brexit and the reason it wants the EU to fall apart is the Trump administration wants to be able to deal with all the parts of Europe individually, right? It wants to have bilateral deals with France, with Germany, with Belgium, with the UK, with Denmark, whatever, because we're really big. And if you break up the European Union, then we've got lots of leverage in all of those uh, arrangements. And this is what Boris Johnson will discover the day after. Uh, he'll discover what all of Donald Trump's business partners have discovered <laughs> in the past, that any promises that he made uh, previously are no longer valid. Um, now, so why don't I, especially good realists that I am, think that's a great idea? You know, we don't want the European Union out there. Because in fact, the European Union was nearly perfect from an American perspective. Yes, it was a tougher bargaining partner on trade issues, because the European Union could speak with one voice, but it was also a whole lot simpler. The transaction costs of being able to deal with Europe as a whole was much easier than trying to deal with all those individual European countries at some level. But also, as I mentioned in my talk, the European Union was part of what kept politics in Europe relatively tranquil and peaceful. And when European politics gets really exciting, as it did in, say, 1914, right? 
or 1939, you know, then that often has consequences for the United States as well. So the European Union was sort of perfect. It wasn't so unified that it could be a real rival to the United States, but it was unified enough to keep things relatively quiet. Right, so I think the United States should favor the European Union, be slowly withdrawing from NATO, and if the UK is, wants to go it alone, it will discover that bargaining with the United States is not a whole lot of fun all by your lonesome. That's my prediction, and I say that as someone who likes Great Britain and wishes you well. <laughs> Up on top, the question. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, you know, American exceptionalism, the, the problem is, I mean, first of all, when people talk about American exceptionalism, first of all, there's one strand of it that's just sort of jingoistic, that we're so wonderful and special and we've got this great constitution and all, all of that stuff. And it's kind of cultural in nature. The part of American exceptionalism they tend to forget is uh, what I highlighted was our geopolitical position. What's really unusual about the United States is we're the only major power in history that's never had another major power nearby. Right. Once we had pushed Great Britain out uh, about the time we become a, a great power. And that's a remarkable situation. The United States hasn't been invaded since 1812. Right. That was, by the way, you guys. But but <laughs> but I want to be clear, you, we started it. It was a bad idea. Um, but not since 1812. Every other major power has either been invaded or significantly attacked. Great Britain lost 40,000 people at home in World War Two. Nothing like that has happened to the United States. Uh, the only time anything similar was our own civil war. We did that to ourselves. That's a really exceptional thing. And that means there's really two strands to American exceptionalism. One is the idea that we are the crusaders that can go out and save the world and transform it, which has been driving our foreign policy for the last 25 years. But there's this other strand, which is that we can basically go it alone. When Donald Trump talks about America first, he is sort of acknowledging an exceptionalism. We're big, we're continent-sized, we got no enemies. I don't think that's the right policy for us to follow, but it's another very important strand going all the way back to the founding of the country. The idea that we don't want to be tainted by that nasty, sordid, great power politics that those European powers practice as well. And that's an element. And finally, on diffusion of, uh, of power as well, I should be very clear, what I'm talking about with offshore balancing is basically where the United States is going to make major commitments of military power, where it's going to, it agrees to possibly fight and die, send troops in harm's way, put its own citizens at risk. What are the interests for which we will make commitments that we really mean that we might actually deliver on if challenged? There are a whole series of other problems in the world whether it's climate change or public health or transnational crime or trafficking of all sorts um, that are part of the diffusion of power, part of the emergence of you know, bad guys or other forces in different parts of the world that don't require a direct American military response and in fact an American military response would be counterproductive. I think the United States should be fully engaged in trying to address uh, those problems as well, because they do affect us, but they're not the kinds of core security commitments that I was talking about. Okay. Other, other hands. How about the woman in the back there? She actually has a turtleneck on, so, um, yeah. I'm just an empiricist here. I observe the data. Um, hi, I'm a first-year politics student. Um, my question will be, um, how should America respond to the trade war in order in order for it to be considered as a successful foreign policy? 
So trade war. Let's take a question up on top. How about the guy in the green sweatshirt? Hi, my name is Alexis. Um, if you imagine that Donald Trump actually listened to anyone's advice, um, and if you talk to him tomorrow, what would you advise him to do in the Middle East, and especially in Syria now? I think you've written about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, you want me to take those two? We'll take one. How about the gentleman the way back there? Yeah, you. You're the last one there. Uh... Um, I was wondering what that um, retreat, um, that sort of, in terms of political influence, would mean for global um, challenges such as climate change. Um, should the U.S. then maybe um, put put more of its um, influence there and more of yeah attempt more there, or um, or would that, from your perspective, also mean that the U.S. should get less involved in global challenges too? Mm. Okay. Uh, okay. On the trade war, I'd be telling him to wage it smarter. Uh, I mean, I think it was pretty clear by the time Trump got elected. Uh, that China was not abiding by all of the terms that it had agreed to when it joined the World Trade Organization. And that was not just an American view. That was a view uh, in other uh, countries as well, that some of China's uh, international economic practices were not fair and that, therefore, they needed to be confronted. And as I think I hinted in my uh, remarks, the way to do that would have been to line up Japan and South Korea and Canada and Mexico and the European Union and the other major world economies and go to the Chinese and say, look, uh, we want to continue to deal with you economically. We are not trying actually to retard your development uh, or anything like that, but what you're doing is not fair to us and it's not what you agreed to do. And if you want to continue to do business with us on this basis, it's not going to work. But that would have been much more effective had we done this in partnership with a number of other countries. What Trump did, of course, was the exact opposite. He picked a trade war with China without really understanding how that even works. Uh, but he also picked a trade fight with South Korea, he picked, has picked repeatedly fights with uh, Japan. He, uh, you know, went to the mat with Mexico and Canada to get a non-new uh, agreement, which may, by the way, may, may not even get ratified. Uh, at this point, the new version of NAFTA. And of course, he's threatened various trade uh, sanctions on Europe at various points, and we may uh, finally actually be imposing uh, a few in the wake of the Boeing Airbus uh, decision as well. If you, were, if you thought that China was your big problem, right, this was just a bad way to go about doing it. So that's what I would, I guess, advise him on that. On Syria, um, well, the first thing I would tell him was to go uh, build a time machine. Uh, and go back a week or two and reverse the decision that you'd made and then keep the time machine going and go back to 2011 and see if you can get the Obama administration to have a different policy towards the Syrian uprising from the very start. Right? Because as much as I disagree with what's happened in the last couple of weeks, this problem was very long in the making. Right. And it began, I think, when we insisted that Assad must go, which we did very early on, without any possibility uh, that we were going to actually make that happen. And when the United States adopted a series of contradictory objectives towards that uprising as well, where on the one hand we wanted Assad out of power, on the other hand we didn't want either ISIS or anyone that looked remotely like al-Qaeda to gain power. And those two objectives were fundamentally at odds. We should have, of course, pushed very hard for a diplomatic 
end, a political solution to the Syrian civil war, uh, early on before it really got going, before tens of thousands of people were killed. But one of the things we also did under the Obama administration was say that Iran couldn't participate in the Geneva process. Iran was a major stakeholder. They had a position there. They had influence. They could veto any arrangement that was made. So by telling them they couldn't be there, we made it uh, guaranteed that that process would go uh, nowhere uh, as well. Uh, now, finally, and very controversially, and this is the piece that uh, Peter is referring to, I did write a piece last week saying that given where we are today, given that Trump has pulled out without preparation, without warning, without consulting anyone, et cetera, given where we are today, the least bad, emphasize, not good, but least bad solution ultimately will be for the Assad regime to restore control over the rest of Syria which will solve Turkey's concerns about the Kurds, right? And eventually will give Russia and Iran a reason to leave because I don't think Assad is going to want to keep them there. I don't like that outcome. I would rather that Bashar al-Assad were on trial at The Hague for war crimes, but I can't see an alternative that looks better now given that the United States and nobody else is going to support the creation of an independent Kurdish state. Right? And given that that's not going to happen, the Kurds are going to have to live in some country. And the question is, which one? Turkey's not an option. Iraq's, there's already populations there. So somebody's going to have to control that part of Syria. And as horrible it is to contemplate, I think ultimately Damascus is going to be the least bad outcome there. But again, I like my time machine solution better. And the question about retreat. I think this oh, is a sorry. question about kind of your strategy. Oh, yeah. For, classifying just as two, retreat. Two, yeah, thank I you. I like that. Thank you. Um, and I know you would. Uh, <laughs> I really hate the word retreat, right? Because it has all these connotations of bugles sounding and a, an army leaving the field in tatters and in disarray and, and enemies swooping in uh, to regain uh, things. Um, that's not what I think the United States should do. I think the United States should do a measured reassessment of where it is committed and get out of commitments that aren't in its interest and keep the ones uh, that it has. In some respects, those of us who advocate for restraint think the United States should be committed in fewer places and more seriously in the places that it is committed, as opposed to being committed almost everywhere, even though we're not exactly sure that we mean it uh, anymore. Uh, but something like climate change, we should be absolutely focused on because that's really serious and that's not going to get solved if countries like the United States and China and a whole bunch of others don't cooperate and work out a way to reduce the a number of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that we're all engaged in. There's a hand down here. And then we'll come, I'll come back there. Hello, I'm Hossam Zumrud, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK. And Professor Walt, Steve, it's good to see you again. Hi, nice to see you. It's really a pleasure. I spent a couple of years at the Kennedy School, and my office was two doors away from his, so it's a great pleasure. And I'm, I am graduate of the LSE, so it's good to be back and to hear this discussion. Um, to uh, fast forward, the U.S. Uh, foreign policy, the Middle East, and we should not have a special relationship with one country. I think we can guess what that one country is. No, it's more than one. Uh, two, three. But in the last three years, I think this policy has been uh, uh, exercised at worst especially vis-a-vis the, vis -vis the issue of Israel-Palestine. With uh, shuttering the PLO office, 
in Washington. By the way, I was the ambassador there, so I have Trump to thank for being in the UK these days. To the Jerusalem and the moving of the embassy, honor and refugees, the issue of borders and settlements, all that. My question, Steve, do you envision any post-Trump US administration that could reverse these steps, or you think it will be politically suicidal? Thanks for that question. Let, hold that for a second. Uh, woman back here in the middle, the black jacket. Yeah. Professor, thanks for your scholarship and your talk. Um, do you think trade-offs in intelligence cooperation that the U.S. makes causes it to be beholden to certain foreign policies? I ask in regard to specifically Israel and Saudi Arabia. And do you think this constraints any real, real change going forward? And then right behind you, there's a, a guy against the wall there. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so as you pointed out in your talk, uh, the American foreign policy failures have been sort of a constant, regardless of the past couple of administrations. So if the end is offshore balancing, the means to achieve that seem a bit complex. Um, how do we realistically go about doing things like uh, getting Congress in favor of a favorable relationship with Israel, reducing the influence of the Israeli lobby, and getting more moderate, so to speak, voices in the blob, or indeed replacing the blob altogether? Like, how actionable are these things in the short to medium term? Okay. Um, so on the first issue, sort of what the Trump policy towards Israel and Israel-Palestine, let me be really provocative here. What the Trump people have done is basically removed the hypocrisy from American policy on that issue, where uh, the last, the previous three presidents, uh, I think, you know, tried at various points to advance some kind of two-state solution. They worked hard on it. Uh, Obama, in particular, worked, uh, worked very hard on it. Um, but they were never willing to put any real pressure on Israel. Um, and, you know, they would promise to move the embassy, then they would change their minds. But in a sense, we were pretending to be even-handed while we weren't being even-handed. And as a result, the policy ultimately failed. It, it uh, got nowhere. What Trump has done is simply stripped away the illusion that we're being even-handed here. We're not being even-handed at all, right? We'll move the embassy. We'll shut the uh, consulate or the office in uh, Washington. Uh, we will uh, turn, I mean, just think about this for a second. We will turn one of the thorniest diplomatic problems on the American ledger over to Trump's son-in-law, <laughs> a real estate developer of modest achievements, right, who had never served in office before. All right, just, you know, it, it's mind-boggling. It's a little bit like saying, you know, I want to have open-heart surgery. Who here would like to do it? All right, um, <laughs> And that's, that's a sign that that whole, uh, that whole Kushner plan right, was never a plan. It's just a fig leaf. It's just a fig leaf designed to delay things while uh, the consolidation of control over the West Bank continues, which I still believe is ultimately not in Israel's interest, is going to cause enormous long-term problems for Israel. It's something that Americans who care a lot about Israel should have opposed uh, all along. But I guess my view is that Trump did not change American policy all that much. Did any of his steps uh, 
end the peace process? No, because there was no peace process to begin with. Um, so anyway, that's, that's just he's removed the hypocrisy, which may or may not be useful. Uh, the question on intelligence cooperation, I think the United States, uh, yes, we get intelligence from all of our allies in various points. Some of it's of great value. I don't think we... Um, alter our positions on big foreign policy issues because of the value of the intelligence we're getting, uh, in part because I think the United States is, uh, our allies benefit at least as much from the intelligence we give them. Uh, in this case, n none of our allies is so important as a source of intelligence that we're going to really uh, twist American foreign policy in some uh, dramatically different direction. I, I could be wrong about that. It is not a subject I've studied, uh, studied closely. Um, and finally, how could we move towards the kind of strategy I'm suggesting? I actually think there are big structural forces at work that is going to cause this to happen. Uh, I think we are going to focus much more attention on Asia. I believe that you know Trump's efforts to get out of the Middle East as ham-fisted as they have been are ultimately going to succeed, if not under his presidency, under one of his successors, hopefully in a more disciplined and sustained way. And by the way, it doesn't mean that the United States now pretends the Middle East doesn't exist. We, we probably would still have the rapid deployment force, and there are probably some circumstances in which the United States might send it back in. I don't think those circumstances are going to materialize. We just wouldn't be physically present there and wouldn't be trying to shape the local politics of different countries in, in that part of the world. And I think the American, call it special relationship with Europe, which was really an artifact of the Cold War, has been eroding now for 25 years. I think that process is still going to continue uh, as well. So I think, you know, this is going to happen. It's a question of how quickly. And I sometimes say that I wrote the book that's out there uh, in order to take a process that will normally take 20 or 30 years, maybe accelerate it and get it done in 15. Okay. So... Um, All right, 20. <laughs> we'll take this guy right up here. Then I'll come back. There's a lot of hands, so we'll get a bunch of people in. Come to this woman down here. Go ahead. I'll give it to you in just a sec. Sorry. Uh, David Brennan, thank you very much for your talk. One concern about not withdraw withdrawal, uh, retrenchment, offshore balancing, is that the countries that you're withdrawing from won't then step up. Europe may not suddenly spend 3.5% of GDP on defense. What they may do is either instead talk more with the enemies, supposedly, rival states, or they may go into sort of more risky behaviors. I'm just going to throw an example out. Saudi Arabia may decide it wants nukes in return. Um, what are your thoughts with regards to those problems? I know you might say engagement obviously would still be a constant, but if the U.S. doesn't have skin in the game, how could it be credible? I mean, can we just like maybe broaden that too a little bit? I mean, I think it's a really good question. Mm -hmm. What are the, when you think about your strategy, look, all strategies have they don't all have upsides, but they all have downsides, it seems to me, costs and risks. So if you were to switch, the country were to switch to kind of offshore balancing, I mean, what are those, what are those risks? What, what are the potential costs there? So just to kind of flesh that out more generally. Woman up here, yeah. Hi. Um, you've already touched this a little bit, but I just want to ask again, in light of the latest development in Syria, and as I'm sure you're well aware, this is not the first time America has let down or betrayed the Kurdish people, why do you think that's the case? 
Um, I mean, why do you think um, America has repeatedly chosen to let down one of the only group of people in the Middle East who are secular, pro-West, and dare I say pro-America pro up until about two weeks ago? Thank you. A uh, guy in the red T-shirt right up there. I think it's red. Yeah. So I just wanted to ask, uh, where do you think U.S. foreign policy stands with regards to India and the rest of Asia in context of the Chinese trade situation? That's enough for now. Yeah. <laughs> All the problems with my arguments. What about the Kurds and India and the rest of Asia? Okay. <laughs> um, so, so there are, there are a series of, I think, reasonable um, objections to the policies I've made out. And if you want to see most of them in one article, uh, where's Bill? Uh, Bill Wolforth has written books and articles uh, laying out all of the objections to what I've just said. Uh, and we've, we've been friends for a long time, and I still haven't gotten him you know, completely convinced. Um, but he hasn't convinced me either. Um, but just a few of them. You mentioned the proliferation argument, that if the United States is not out there protecting everybody, some of those countries will decide they need to get nuclear weapons, and that may be true. I think we have uh, historically always exaggerated the propensity of countries to go nuclear, but some of them might. I just remind you that what we've been doing is also push some countries to pursue nuclear weapons. Why does North Korea want nuclear weapons? Why does Iran at least want to be very close to having nuclear weapons? Why did countries like Libya uh, get interested in having nuclear weapons? A variety of reasons, but one of them was that the world's most powerful country really didn't like them, and on a couple of occasions had made it clear it might try to get rid of them if necessary. And nuclear weapons are a good solution to that particular problem. So. What the net effect of this would be on the proliferation problem, I think, is, is kind of uh, hard to say. Um, I think if you uh, uh, allow for offshore balancing uh, as a possibility, you have to recognize that American influence in some parts of the world would probably go down. Our ability to tell countries uh, what to do. Uh, the Europeans, if they were providing their own security and not dependent on the United States, uh, could occasionally tell the United States to get stuffed. Right? That you wouldn't have to do, go along with us on a variety of things or sort of quietly grumble about what the United States is doing as well. I don't know if that's uh, something you uh, in Europe, people in Europe would welcome or not, but it's certainly an option. By the way, it's not necessarily clear that Europe suddenly has to spend 3.5% of GDP on defense. As I've suggested, Europe is already spending a lot more than Russia is on defense. They just don't spend it very intelligently because they've always known they could call on Uncle Sam to bail them out. If Europe got serious about providing the kind of defense it might need, and again, I don't think the Russian threat is that great, and it's not zero, but it's not that great, then it doesn't require necessarily you know, ramping up uh, defense spending or, or anything uh, like that. Um, the Kurdish people. Um, uh, the United States, of course, is not the only country that has let down the Kurds uh, historically. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I hate to, again, go into IR theory mode, but this is a perfect illustration why countries or why peoples want their own state. The reason the Kurds have been in such terrible shape is that they don't have their own state. They're divided amongst several states, and there is no agency or organization that can therefore protect them. And the other powers, both the immediate countries in the region and great powers like the United States, have never been willing to support Kurdish independence because we realize 
that doing so would have enormous consequences right then and there. It would cause a war in the Middle East if you tried to create an independent Kurdistan now and incorporate the parts of the places where the Kurdish people live. Even if you just tried to do it in like one part, you might well generate a really major conflict, and that's led major powers to walk away from that uh, commitment, uh, as we've done repeatedly. In retrospect, it would have been wonderful right? if back in 1919, when the Ottoman Empire was breaking up, if the great powers had supported the Kurdish desire for their own state and had been given one the same way we carved out some other states as well. I think that would have solved the problem. Um, but that didn't happen, which is why I think the Kurds have been uh, in such terrible shape ever since. Divisions within the Kurdish populations have exacerbated it, but the primary problem is they don't have a state of their own. And just like the Palestinians, just like the Rohingya, just like other groups that find themselves minorities and lack a state to protect them, uh, they are often therefore uh, victims, which is something we should all be, uh, I think, somewhat ashamed of. India and the rest of Asia, I haven't thought about uh, India's role in terms of trade policy and things like that, but I think what you're seeing happening in Asia now is uh, you know, balance of power, balance of threat theory at work. As China has become more powerful, as China has become more assertive, not surprisingly, other countries in Asia are starting to cooperate more with each other and are more and more interested in having close security ties with the United States. So the evolution of American ties with India since the late 1990s until today is sort of perfectly uh, consistent with that and especially striking given that the United States and India had had a kind of frosty relationship for most of the period since uh, India gained uh, independence. I think you know, that's not surprising. I'll just add that that coalition that you might see forming in Asia, the United States, Australia, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, India, maybe a few others, that is an unwieldy coalition. That's not like holding NATO together, which was child's play by comparison to keeping that coalition working effectively. I could go into the details if, you, if you'd like. Um, it's going to require a lot of attention given the distances, given some of the tensions between some of those countries, like South Korea uh, and, and Japan. But I think it's an inevitable response to China's greater power and China's greater assertiveness. How about the gentleman right down here in, what does that say, Urge? In the <clears throat> um, thank you, Professor, for your wonderful talk. And I have a, I have a question about the China issues. Um, do you think the U.S. would achieve its goal under the, uh, under the President Trump's policy upon China? And in the long run, do you think a, a, a successful foreign policy for the United States is to prevent China from seeking a greater influence or have a deeper cooperation so as to sustain globalization rather than anti-globalization? Let me take another couple questions. Uh, how about the gentleman down here in, it's like a black shirt at the end, right? Well, that's a white shirt, but okay. okay. So. <laughs> Good evening, Professor Walt. First of all, thank you very much for your very knowledgeable presentation. I'd like to take advantage of your knowledge of realism and ask, given that it's very clear that the end of history as described by Francis Fukuyama is not actually, has not been realized, do you think that we are in the midst of a return 
to a realist, multipolar, or perhaps even bipolar world? And would that change the style and form of U.S. foreign policy? Let me get one more question. How about the guy right here in the center, kind of maroon? <clears throat> um, hi, I'm a second-year international relations undergraduate at LSE. Um, my question is, do you think your explanation of the blob helped explain the foreign policy behavior of European NATO states as well as the U.S.? Okay. Um, so I think the United States and China um, are destined to be uh, serious competitors over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, you know, I am enough, uh, I'm an, uh, not as much of a structuralist as my co-author John Mearsheimer is. Nobody is as much of a structuralist <laughs> as, as he is. But I am enough of a structuralist to say the two most powerful countries in the world are not going to be friends. They are going to view each other warily. They're going to worry about what the other one might be doing and where it is. They're going to worry about what power trends, influence trends are. And they're going to compete for influence in lots of places, uh, including uh, influence in Asia. One of the reasons that coalition in Asia is going to be hard to maintain is the Chinese will do whatever they can to break it up. Because ultimately, the Chinese would like to get the United States out of Asia. That didn't used to be China's position. Right. Uh, China used to like having the United States there because they worried a lot about Japan and things like that. Uh, but I think that's going to uh, change if it hasn't changed completely. And over time, uh, they would be much happier if the other most powerful country in the world didn't have close security partnerships with all those countries on China's borders or near the straits that China has to send shipping through and, and all that. So there's going to be a competition uh, for influence. Whether Trump's particular strategy for China, going after some of its high-tech industries, putting these punitive tariffs on. Whether that's going to work, I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's going to produce big Chinese concessions. I think the Chinese, like most other countries, do not want to give in to this kind of pressure for the obvious reason that if, he, if, you, if you show that he can do it once, He'll be back every year with a new set of demands and a new set of sanctions, a new set of pressures. So, you know, countries don't like to give in to blackmail, and that's kind of true of China's case. Where this ultimately leads, though, I think none of us knows. There's going to be competition. There's going to be a rivalry. Does it remain within bounds? And, very importantly, do the two countries uh, find ways to cooperate on the areas where our interests are more closely aligned? And again, I would think of climate as one of those issues where we all are kind of in the same boat here. Uh, that remains to be seen. I hope so. It should be possible, certainly it's been possible historically, for really intense rivals to nonetheless carve out some areas where their interests were connected. The United States and the Soviet Union, for example, led the campaign for the Non-Proliferation Treaty in the 1960s because they had the same interest, not having lots of other countries get nuclear weapons. And I'm hoping that on some issues the United States and China uh, can continue to do that. Um, uh, we never left a realist world. We just briefly had a moment uh, where people thought, you know, realism uh, was, uh, was dead. Uh, or so. And yes, I think a lot of the insights of realism are now sort of more obviously relevant. They don't explain everything, but it's pretty hard not to look at the last 20 years or so and see, gee, why did some countries like Russia react the way they did? I think realist theory kind of tells you. And for that matter, why did the United States do all the things I was describing and criticizing? 
because we could. The same reason Bill Clinton, you know, uh, had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, uh, that, was his, that was his explanation. That's what he later admitted. I did it because I could, right? And, and it, the point is that what realism tells you is if you're really powerful and you're unconstrained, you don't have any real checks on what you might do, some of your worst instincts can be indulged in, in various ways. And I think, to some respects, the uh, amount of ambition the United States showed is not fully explained by a structural or a realist explanation, but it's a passive, it's a permissive condition uh, that allowed it to happen. And as other states emerge now to check the United States to some degree, the United States is being forced to sober up uh, a little bit as well. Uh, I have not tried to study the blob in Europe, so I don't have anything really uh, sophisticated uh, to say about it. There, is, there are equivalents of it. I was at Chatham House uh, earlier today, and it's, uh, no, it's a, th a very, on a roll. Yeah. It's, it's, on a, it's a very important uh, think tank shaping views on foreign policy here in the UK. There are equivalents in France, and, and, and I assume that these places have, you know, a pretty significant influence. And, and the other thing to point out, and it's, it's again, I have not studied this, but during the Cold War, there was an awful lot of, let's call it almost intellectual integration between these different groups. People traveled back and forth. You know, you went and gave talks at all these different places. People came. And it, you could talk about a, almost a transatlantic elite community. And it, there's no question that my colleagues who are like big uh, supporters of NATO are desperate to try and keep that transatlantic elite community together. Right, because they think that's what holds the United States and its European allies uh, together. The fact that people know each other, have visited each other's countries, have written papers together. And I think that this has some modest impact, but I think ultimately the centrifugal forces that are pulling uh, the two sides of the Atlantic further apart are going to win out over what you can do at the elite level. But as I said, I haven't really studied it, so I don't really know. Okay, so... Um how about the gentleman in the white shirt back there? Yeah. Given what you just said about China and America, um, doesn't that competition potentially extend to their models of governance? And wouldn't actually liberal hegemony, uh, you know, possibly a more restrained, less militaristic version, um, be most appropriate for countering, you know, perhaps the export of authoritarianism? Mm. Okay. Uh, all the way in the back, last row, yeah. Um, hi, thank you very much for the good talk. Um, my question is about the, um, the, uh, the stability of regions and um, how you propose, or really the question is, how would you use other um, transnational cooperation organizations, say, um, the Arab League or African Union, are any of those viable for achieving regional stability as well, similar to the EU? And then there was a woman right down here. You had your hand up, right? Yeah. Okay. Hi, I am Hanito, uh, IR student at King's College London. And my question is, uh, given the rise of China and resurgence of uh, Russia, do you think the political unity of the West is critical for successful U.S. foreign policy? And if it is, uh, 
do you think there is the unity regarding the uh, regarding China and Russia? Thank you. Okay. Um, so, if I understood the first question, you know, so how could the competition between the United States and China maybe encourage the United States to get its act together, or, or create a, a kinder, gentler version of liberal hegemony? Yeah, I guess I'd say a couple of things. The American attempt to sort of spread the liberal world order everywhere, I think, has failed. It's not going to work. There was the assumption back in the 90s, not universally held, but widely held, that over time, you know, China was going to become like us too. It was going to develop economically, acquire a middle class. That middle class would want political rights and power, and gradually it would converge towards us. I don't know very many people who believe that. That might happen, but I don't know very many people who believe that now. And I think for the foreseeable future, um, you're going to end up with a liberal order in the United States, Western Europe, most of Eastern Europe, um, but not into the Soviet Union. Then you have Russia, China, you'll have some authoritarian powers in various other places, and they're going to coexist the way separate spheres have, uh, have coexisted uh, in the past. If we want to make that way of organizing society look less attractive so that more people adopt values we uh, we like, uh, I think I've already given you the prescription. The United States has to mostly get its own house in order. And again, if you were sort of a you know, social scientist from Mars and you came to Earth and looked at the last 25 years and said, well, which countries seem to be performing well? Which governmental systems seem to be working well? You know, you might well conclude that, gee, the United States is not doing so great. Um, you know, a big financial crisis, uh, lots of internal divisions, lots of domestic problems, can't seem to get anything done, totally gridlocked at home. The United Kingdom, uh, creator of democracy in certain respects, or one of the great democratic powers, completely at odds with itself, may split up. Hardly a success for a democratic system if it starts to devolve into its separate parts, usually not a sign of health. Right? Meanwhile, who's done well? Chinese have done remarkably well. They've grown economically. They've taken a billion or several hundred million people out of poverty, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't really suffer in the 2008 financial crisis. I am not saying, by the way, Chinese performance is perfect by any means or that I want to go, uh, you know, uh, live there permanently or anything like that. But it seems to me that we in the quote-unquote West ought to be sort of looking at ourselves and saying, how can we fix what's wrong in our own societies and then go to the world and say, look, you pick which one you think is most uh, attractive, recognizing that not everyone would voluntarily pick the values that, that we like uh, the most. What role could other organizations like the African Union or the Arab League play in regional stability uh, like the European Union has? I think the European Union is, uh, is almost sui generis here. I don't think there's any other regional organization that comes close. Uh, you know, ASEAN at a very uh, lower level, not, certainly not the Arab League, which is pretty uh, much ineffectual. The Gulf Cooperation Council is largely uh, moribund at this point. I think the African Union doesn't have that uh, capacity either. Uh, so I think you know, the European Union is really kind of special, and that's not going to be uh, the source of stability. And the last one, um, uh, oh, the, what role does the, the rest of the world play in this competition between the United States and China? Is that the, do I remember the question properly? And what impact would it have on kind of Russia, China, I think? Well, I'll say, I'll say a couple of things. A really big question. If, 
If I'm correct that the United States and China are going to be engaged in a pretty significant security competition over the next 20 or 30 years, there's an interesting question to ask what role Europe will play in that. It's not immediately obvious that the Europeans would want to sign up on the American side of that particular competition. They very well might, and I used to think they wouldn't at all, and I've started to revise my views on this. Um, but where Europe decides to play in that one, do they say, look, you know, you folks want to fight over influence in Asia, that's great. We're going to stay over here and be neutral. That's one possibility for European countries, because we can make, you know, we can trade with America, we can trade with China, we can make lots of money doing that. Uh, we, we're going to stay neutral. Alternatively, Europeans may decide that for ideological reasons, they want to side with the United States, or they may decide that they'll side with the United States vis-a-vis -vis China in exchange for the United States continuing to help protect Europe. That that might be the strategic bargain that gets reached. Uh, I don't know which of those things is going to take place, uh, but that, that's a really big one. One final point is, if the United States were really smart, all right, which we're not, um, we would not be doing everything we could think of to drive Moscow closer to Beijing, right? We would be trying to find ways to pull them uh, apart, and that would mean trying to resolve some of the differences we currently have with Russia. Because, in fact, improving the situation with Russia would be good for all the parties concerned. It would be good for Europe if Russia was out of Ukraine. They're not going to get out of Crimea, but out of the rest of Ukraine. Um, and no longer interfering in European domestic politics. That would be good for the rest of Europe. It would be good for Russia to have the sanctions lifted and not to be worried about continued NATO expansion. And it would be good for the United States to have Moscow less closely aligned with Beijing. Right? And one of the great ironies of history is that Donald Trump is probably the last person in the world who could pursue a rapprochement with Russia now because his own relationship with Russia and Ukraine is now so tangled, no one would trust what his motives were at that point. But you know, a simple sort of realpolitik view of this says that what we've been doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia is exactly what we shouldn't be doing from a broader security perspective. Very good timing. We have hit the bewitching hour. Um, I want to thank everybody for coming out this evening. Steve, I want to thank you for a terrific talk. And thank you very much.